0: Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover and you are listening to a special episode of Beyond the Paper Gown. We knew it was coming. The decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked months in advance of the announcement. Still, once it hit, it felt to me and to many others like an earthquake. And if you've ever experienced an earthquake, you know that shortly after the first jolt for some time, you will experience aftershocks, most of which are much less jarring than the first initial quake, but can also be pretty sizable and unpredictable. In fact, you never quite know when they're going to hit. So I couldn't think of a better analogy for what we've all just experienced. And just like earthquakes, which are pretty indiscriminate in terms of who they affect, this decision will impact everyone to some degree, admittedly some more than others. But no matter our gender, sexual orientation, political affiliation, or religion, we will all be affected in some way. The podcast you're about to hear is one of a series of four podcasts, which aims to help you understand the many ways that we are all going to be affected, the aftershocks, if you will. It's taken from a webinar I hosted on July 6th, where we invited 11 expert panelists on four different panels to explain how the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade will make an impact on our health, our rights, our privacy, and even our economy. I hope it will inform you and inspire you to take action for your own protection and health, as well as for the communities you live and work in. We'll continue with our panel that takes a look at the implications on privacy right after this break. Here's a quiz. Is the personal information you provide to a health app covered by patient privacy laws? Does the company who provides the app have an obligation to protect your data? Who can see your internet searches? In light of the Dobbs decision, what you don't know could put you in jeopardy and has broad implications about health data in general. The panel you're about to hear focused on privacy issues, such as what does this decision mean for apps, internet searches, social media, or even conversations with health professionals, as well as steps to best protect ourselves and our data. Our next panel is coming on board. There's Laura Compton, who's a member of Mintz, Levin, Cohn, Baris, Glowski, and Popeo PC. I hope I said that right, as an attorney. And Blair Hurst, who's founder and CEO of the Digital Health Review. And Stephanie Humphrey, a technology and lifestyle expert, as well as author. Thank you all for joining me today. We started the conversation with Laura Compton. I asked what are the most challenging issues with respect to digital health apps and privacy concerns.
2: So with digital health apps, I think there is a lot of confusion, and rightfully so, about which privacy and security laws apply to the information that's currently being collected. Um, And why is this important? Because, you know, since the early 70s, we've been operating under Roe. And during that time, the amount of information that's being collected on all of us in the digital space has exponentially increased, as has the value of the data that is being collected on all of us. So we're now entering into this new phase where this information can now be used against providers and individuals in states where abortion is criminalized. And we've heard that's going to be quite a few states. Um, so really just awareness of what laws apply and how that plays out when it comes to collection of information is going to
1: be critical. And Blair, you again, um, focus on digital health apps and you know the founders of these apps and, uh, and these companies. What are some of the challenges that they're seeing with respect to uh, trying to manage their data privacy, their, their clients' data privacy?
3: Well, it's, it's fairly multiple. Um, a lot of these companies to begin with have been struggling with just the basic fact of getting trust. If we can gain trust, we'll be able to deliver better access um, to care and at a cheaper cost. So there's benefits there. I, mean, I think Roby Wade is going to build some of that trust as well, because now they're starting over because folks are asking, what data are you collecting? Where are you sending it to? And these are questions that continue to be asked. They need to understand, like. Is this company HIPAA compliant? Um, Who are they partnering with? Um, What data
1: are they collecting? And again, you know, Laura, I met you through a webinar that, um, and, and my big aha moment was that these apps do not necessarily have to be HIPAA compliant. So explain what HIPAA compliance is and why that's important in this situation.
2: Okay. So it it is a common misconception that HIPAA, which has privacy and security requirements that are applicable to protected health information, applies to all of the health-related information that's out there in the digital world, and that's simply just not the case. HIPAA applies to covered entities and business associates, which are two defined terms. Covered entities include health plans and health insurance healthcare providers that are engaging in HIPAA-covered transactions. And basically what that means is they're involved with health insurance. And healthcare clearinghouses are the last ones. And those are essentially the switches that enable communications between the plans and the providers. Those entities may contract with vendors and other service providers that involve protected health information. And if those vendors are using and disclosing that information in connection with the services they provide, their business associates and subject to the security rules and applicable portions of the privacy rule that relate to their services. So how this plays out, just to give an example, is you know if you have a hospital system that decides it's going to build an app that's a tool, and they engage a vendor to help them do that and host the information. You know, that vendor would be covered by HIPAA because PHI is involved in the service. But if a company that isn't a covered entity—that's just you know a tech company, for example—that has a great idea on wellness—you um, know that entity could build the same app, put it out there for consumers to use, and that that company would not be subject to HIPAA because there's no covered entity anywhere.
1: And even if it is subject to HIPAA, you've made the point that it's not an ironclad shield.
2: Correct. So, you know, I think that's really what I am aiming to educate people about today is, you know, one, HIPAA may not always apply, and two, even if it does, that that's not an absolute shield To protect information that's out there, particularly when it comes to law enforcement. So, um, you know, HHS has come out and said, you know, as a healthcare provider, you can't go volunteer information to law enforcement if it's not required by law. But there are plenty of instances in which it would be required by law for a healthcare provider or other entity subject to HIPAA um, to provide information, and classic examples of that include valid court orders, court-ordered search warrants, criminal subpoenas, um, you know, grand jury subpoenas, and, you know, a whole host of other things. Responding to certain administrative requests, like medical board, that is permissible. Responding to, you know, identifying or locating suspects. Limited amounts of information can be disclosed on, you know, for, for those purposes, um, you know, identifying or apprehending individuals who have admitted participation in a violent crime.
1: Um, and if abortion is considered a violent crime, that would go under that.
2: Yeah, so we've really got to watch, you know, what what are the other laws that are, are happening in these states? Because it really does make a big difference. Here's another one, child abuse or neglect reporting. If the state comes out and decides, you know, abortion must be reported, that's a required by law reporting.
1: You know, excuse me for interrupting, but going to your point uh, again, when we uh, talked earlier um, before the panel, Blair brought up the issue about that individuals, to, to your point, that are seeking mental health services. Uh, mental health uh, professionals are mandated to report um, an issue about um, if if someone's going to be a, a harm to themselves or others. Stephanie, you brought up the whole issue about data brokers. What data are they brokering, and who are their customers?
4: They are brokering whatever they can collect. Data brokers do just that. They sell data uh, mostly sourced from public records on the internet, so publicly available um, information. But they also purchase. Uh, information from credit card companies, from retailers, from anyone selling basically. But then there is also user-provided data. We volunteer enormous amounts of our own data across platforms, all all across the internet. So that creates this digital footprint that is huge, that gives people a lot of information and data points to make some very specific identifications of uh, consumer behavior on the internet and even all the way down to the individual level. So um, they're selling the data. There was a a Vice article uh, recently where they were able to buy the data of... um, I think 600 different Planned Parenthoods across the uh, country, they were able to buy the location data for about $160. So over the course of the week, weeks worth of data that they had, they were able to tell who had come to that facility, how long they stayed, where they went afterwards. Um, and this is, again, just based off of publicly available information and information that are phones are, are sort of sourcing from us without our knowledge um, and information that we're giving away as well. So uh, it really is incumbent upon all of us, I think, to, to really reconsider our digital footprints in their entirety and the type of information that um, we're putting out there.
1: We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Beyond the Paper Gown. I just want to make the point that a lot of times when women are looking for abortions, they've been diverted to these, quote, crisis clinics that look a lot like abortion clinics, but are in fact not such. They're just the opposite. And again, Laura, you educated me that those are not HIPAA protected, even though everybody has a white coat on and they look very clinical. But yet again, Planned Parenthood are legitimate medical practices, but yet you're saying again, Stephanie, that that information with or without HIPAA can still be discovered. Mm-hmm. And and I also want to go back to the point that and you all could, if somebody also wants to comment, that app privacy policies, it's my understanding, that, and again, because I probably haven't read them and I've just signed the I agree like everybody else, that it does say in the fine print that if they are subpoenaed, they have to give up that information. Is that what you were speaking to, Laura?
2: So, you know, regardless of if you're a, a subject to HIPAA or not, you know there are certain processes in which, you know, for, particularly for criminal purposes, you know, it, companies are are going to be asked to provide this data and compelled to provide the data. So, you know, if you if you get a court order. Um, You know, there there are certain ways you can try to respond to that, but ultimately, you know, failing to comply with a court order, you're going to be held in in contempt. And, you know, depending on the circumstances, um, you know, there's the possibility that, you know, you're being obstructionist and you're going to come up with an obstruction of justice type charge. In my experience representing healthcare providers... You know, these are the types of things that they, they run into on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, if, and for those that are not subject to HIPAA, they even have most of the time less of a shield to be able to say, you know, we can't provide you with this information. Sure. And if
4: I could just jump in there, Mitzi, Mm these these platforms, the the Googles and the social media platforms of the world, they're they're not really inclined to to fight law enforcement um, requests for information. I I think it's greater than it's well above 50 percent as far as how many of law enforcement requests they grant on a regular basis. They've they've put new language in some of their terms of service that they will you know, scrutinize the request to make sure that it's reasonable and and fair and all the rest of that stuff. But again, it's greater than 50%. And there was a recent um, case where Facebook was actually scammed by someone um, pretending to be law enforcement that was able to make a request for data and get it. So uh the idea that that the companies themselves are, are going to be these staunch defenders of justice um with our personal information, I think is is a little bit um naive
1: to, to believe at this point anyway. Now, didn't Google just come up with a statement though that they were going to protect um <laughs> They did. I know where you're going Go already. Go uh, so, so Google Go has ahead. Google has said that they would delete sensitive location
4: data okay. shortly after they collect it, um, which means uh, location data for abortion clinics, for domestic violence shelters, for weight loss clinics, other types of sensitive location information. But they have not specified what that short amount of time is after they collect it. Um, it could be any particular length of time, and law enforcement can certainly subpoena them before they delete it. Uh, Number two, if it's sensitive, why are you collecting it in the first place um, is the better question to be asking. And and number three, they're not going to be deleting search histories, which have been historically used in uh, criminal cases like this um, where they found someone searching for abortion pills or or locations of clinics or things like that. So there's still a ton of data that they're going to keep, and they're still keeping this data. They just won't keep it for as long as they keep the rest of it.
1: Right. And I just want to underline that there was actually at least one case where search information was used to show um, intention to obtain an abortion in a state that banned abortion, and and that was used to prosecute a, a woman
3: for whatever that Google intention was or will be, I think even just disclosing that is a step in the right direction because that is what we need to start asking ourselves. Is if we know what the laws are, what the have been, how are we building on our defenses? And then letting folks know what that is so that we can all work together because there is, there is and has been some benefit of collecting this data. No, I think
1: that's a really good point you're really talking about data collection and so much, especially in women's health, where we don't have a lot of research and we have so many knowledge gaps. A lot of these apps are, you know, tracking and providing that data that we haven't had um, before, and actually impacting on you know clinical treatments and um, and clinical knowledge. And so that's a really good point in terms of the balance with respect to. You know, is that going to get shut down as well? Is that an indirect implication as, as well with respect to women's health? So thank you for making that point. You talked to also, uh, Stephanie, a little bit about the role of social media. Talk a little bit more about what details that you were uh, considering.
4: I think social media can play a huge role. And I think right now they're, they're starting to look at uh, what they call data minimization principles. So that's only collecting the data that's absolutely necessary um, and not storing it on your platform or in your servers for an extended period of time. So, um, you know, if if we can even get that ball rolling, I think we will be sort of ahead of the game. But they're also not doing a lot or they're actually, I, I feel like rolling back some of the uh, sort of First Amendment issues around this whole idea because Facebook and Instagram have recently um, deleted a lot of content around people um, putting stuff out there about how to get abortion pills, where to get it, people offering to purchase abortion pills for other women in other states and send it to them. They've been deleting all of that content across the board very, very quickly, I might add, while they leave information up about how to buy a gun or how to buy weed or how to buy something else, you know, up indefinitely. So there's been a a very concerted effort. It looks, it appears, that there's been a very concerted effort to um, sort of suppress a lot of information around uh, the topic of abortion and Roe v. Wade across social media platforms. So they're going to have to get a little bit more clear on what their policy is around this issue and enforce it. Um, unilaterally across all of those um,
1: instances. Thank you. Well, in the last couple of minutes that we have, I promised that that we'd have some very specific uh, suggestions. So I'm going to start with you, Stephanie, and then leave it up to uh, Blair and and Laura to also uh, contribute.
4: So I would say consider your digital footprint. Honestly, um, you know, if you are concerned about this kind of thing, turn off the Find My feature on your phone, turn off your location data, um, use a VPN if you can, or private browsing uh, when searching. VPN is virtual private network. When searching, um, always ask the app not to track. Uh, we get that little pop-up on, on iPhones now. I'm not sure if Android phones do it, but um, there's a little pop-up when you download an app if you it asks you if you want to track it. definitely do not let it track it. Um, Maybe you need a second phone number through Google Voice or a burner phone if you're going to be communicating with clinics and different people like that. Um, Lock your phone um, and don't enable the face ID or the touch ID if you plan to be in any sort of protest where there is the possibility that you may be arrested. You could be compelled to just, you know, they can put the phone in front of your face and you can show your face to unlock your phone. So disable those features um, and pay, pay in cash.
1: Pay in cash if you can, or, or with uh, gift cards. Great. Thank you. Blair, do you have anything to add?
3: Yes. I would say do all the things that Stephanie just advised. All that's a very thorough list. But if you are using digital health apps right now to take care of your health and you need that to continue with your health care, I would say talk to that specific company. Reach out to them for specific steps that they're going to be doing to protect your data, protect your health, and get reassured. And then... If you're not happy with it, search for alternatives. So I do have on Digital Health Review a resource for folks to figure out what those companies are. Um, So you can feel free to
1: go there. Great, thank you. And we will put that resource on the website as well. And I also wanna make the point again, learning from you all that it's not just the reproductive health apps that are providing information, but even something as simple as a migraine app or, or something that even collects adjacently um, reproductive health information could be a, a source of, of that data. Laura, we'll end with you.
2: All fantastic recommendations, and I agree with all of them. Um, the one thing I didn't get a chance to mention much, but I do want to mention now is just this, the security of, of information. So, you know, for, for those out there who are are collecting data that could be used, I mean, we know what there may be rules that prevent them from disclosing certain information depending on the circumstances but you know we have states that are enacting laws that are basically incentivizing people to go out and get their hands on this type of information for example in Texas so you know regardless of of who you are and I know we have a lot of different stakeholders here you know Security has always been important for multiple reasons, but you know, now there's yet another consideration for why it is so important to think about security of the information that you're collecting and transmitting.
1: Great. Thank you. And thank you all so much for uh, your time and your expertise. This was a really uh, enlightening conversation. This panel was a real eye-opener for me, if for no other reason it made me aware of how casual I am about my own private data. I hope it was a wake-up call for you as well. So here are the takeaways. Data is being collected on all of us all of the time, through our apps, our searches, even our social media posts and views. Most of these health apps are also not protected by patient privacy laws, such as HIPAA, and even if HIPAA does apply, it has its limitations. And, even if there is a privacy agreement, like the one I know I just signed quickly so I can use the app, those privacy agreements only go so far. If you look closely, most, if not all, will say they protect you only to a point, and if subpoenaed, for example, they will turn over information. And this can apply to HIPAA-protected information as well. This could happen in a state, for example, where abortion is illegal, and the state can prosecute someone for having an abortion. This data is not only available on apps that track periods or fertility, any data could be investigated. The challenge is a trade-off. Many apps provide better access to care, provide less expensive care, or enhance healthy behaviors. The data even fills in gaps that research, or the lack of which is often the case in women's health research, has left. But to use this technology safely, consumers will need to ask questions and companies will have to answer those questions satisfactorily so that this technology can still be trusted. And it's not just digital health apps that are affected. If you're using telehealth services or even in-person mental health services, providers may be obligated to disclose if you're planning to have an abortion in those states where abortion is considered murder, for example. Your data is a valuable commodity data brokers collect data and then sell it. They've done this with information such as who goes to Planned Parenthood or who's buying a pregnancy test. Even information as specific as how long someone stays at a clinic can be tracked. And this includes data from our computers and our phones, which creates our data footprint that's easily available and may be stored for long periods of time. Also keep in mind you may not be able to get the information you're looking for if social media companies control what they allow on their platforms. So what can you do? Here are some of the suggestions from our panelists. To minimize your digital footprint, turn off location data, use a VPN or private browsing, and don't allow apps to track you. Pay in cash or gift cards when you can. Use a separate phone if calling an abortion clinic or communicating sensitive information. And if you're going to a protest, lock your phone and don't enable touch or face ID in case someone tries to compel you to unlock it. Communicate with companies that are collecting your data, understand the limits of their privacy protection, and know what they will and won't do to protect your information. And if you work for a company that transmits health data, be mindful of what security is in place to protect your clients and your customers. We'll have resources covering all of this on our website at beyondthepapergown.com, and the replay of the entire webinar can be found there as well. We hope you'll continue the conversation in our forum. Thanks, as always, for listening, and keep safe and healthy. I do hope you'll join us if you
0: enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shambayati and Dr. Mitzi Krokhofer. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.